0: Man, you may be seated, and you can go ahead and be turning. We're going to be kind of going back and forth between two texts this morning uh, in Acts chapter 2, and you'll want to put your ribbon in uh, 1 Corinthians 14. So Acts chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians chapter 14, or actually 1 Corinthians 12, is what we're going to look at just to kind of... Just to kind of springboard what we're talking about this morning, as you know, we are finishing up a a section on the Holy Spirit. We are finishing up a study. We technically finished that study last week on spiritual gifts. I promise this is not coronavirus. Um, So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 11 is what we're looking at. And, And we're looking at this question of signs and wonders. We finished off last week with the discussion of spiritual gifts and and how they play a role in the continuing ministry of the church. And yet there is another category of spiritual gifts that we need to look at, and we're gonna look at those this morning. Acts chapter 12, uh, I keep doing that. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse seven. That's where we are no matter what else you might hear. But it says here, to each one is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit and to another the word of knowledge according to the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit and to another gifts of healing by one spirit and to another the effecting of miracles and to another prophecy and to another the distinguishing of spirits to another various kinds of tongues. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. But one in the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he will. Probably my most fruitful uh, youth pastorate was a church in Springer, Oklahoma. And um, one of the things that made it so fruitful was that we were doing a, a bus ministry. We picked up pretty much all the kids and if you know anything about van ministry or church bus ministry, you know it is quite a commitment. It would take about an hour and a half to pick up everyone who wanted to be picked up, and uh, so that was uh, that was six hours of van driving on Sundays and three hours on Wednesdays. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And uh, to be honest with you, my flesh was kind of creeping in a little bit, and. I started to get a little salty about having to do so much driving and picking up the kids. And, and so at one point I told them, I said, you know what? I'm not going to pick you up on Sunday night anymore. I want you to come, but you're really going to need to find your own ride. I really can't do all of this anymore. And they said, okay. Uh, the Lord taught me a lesson and that lasted for about two weeks. Uh, Wednesday night, as I was driving them home, they were talking about church on Sunday night. And I said, really, Uh, where'd you guys go to church? They said, oh, we went to my friend's church. She invited us and we went over there. (coughs) I said, okay, well, how was it? They said, it was really great. I mean, everything was fine until they started doing the service in Hebrew. And I said, uh, in my analytical, very literal brain, I took them at their word and I thought, um, Hebrew, are there any are there any Israelis in their church? They're like, "Well." I don't know. And I said, "Uh, that's kind of strange. I mean, I've heard of weirder things happening in churches, like, you know, sacrificing chickens and stuff." So I'm kind of like, "Well, all right. So, uh, was only the preacher preaching in Hebrew and they said, "Oh no, everybody started preaching in Hebrew." Everybody started talking in Hebrew and and that's when it hit me. I was like, <laughs> that is not Hebrew, and I'll be there to pick you up Sunday night. (laughs) Because what they were talking about was that it was a church that practices the gift of tongues. Um, It was uh, very interesting. And, And so like I said, last week, we talked about the spiritual gifts and really the ministry and service gifts are what we talked about last week. But there is another classification of gifts that we need to talk about, and that is what I call the sign gifts or the apostolic gifts or what you could call the foundational gifts, although that that assumes a certain view. And we saw a list of those gifts right here in the text that we talked about, that we read. And so the interesting thing is that the same way as Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 12, he he begins to talk in the same way that he did in Romans chapter 12. He talks about the body as having many parts and working in unity and building up the body. And then in verse 28, to end, out, um, to end out this chapter 12, he starts going through this list of kind of rhetorical questions that he says that uh, not all our apostles are, are, they not all our prophets are, are they not all our teachers are, are, they not all our workers of miracles are, are, they and so on and so forth. And so the question is, is should we still expect the operation of these gifts today? That's the question. And I am going to be honest with you, this is probably going to be more of a teaching sermon than a preaching sermon, if you will, Uh, although I do want you to see the significance of this question. This is an important question because, beloved, if these sign gifts, if these gifts are still in operation today, then the last thing I want to do is deprive you of something that could be helpful to your spiritual walk. I don't wanna do that. Anything that is good for your soul, I want to make sure you have the ability to practice that. But on the other hand, if they are not still being continued today, then I want to protect you from what might be a dangerous and even demonic counterfeit. And so that's why we need to ask these questions. That's why this question is so important. And I'm gonna give you basically, there are two positions on this. And you need to know this. Number one, the first position is called cessationalism. By the way, these are not very creative names. Cessationalism. And cessationists teach that the apostolic gifts, the signs and wonders that they have ceased somewhere in the area, we're not exactly sure, but somewhere in the area, of the end of the first century of the church, at the latest the, the end, the middle of the second century. But that's what cessationists teach. Continuationists, on the other hand, guess what they teach? That they've continued. Like I said, these are not hard. These are not hard titles. They're not very creative. They teach that the sign gifts are still in use today and should be eagerly sought. And in some cases, some to even teach that they are the evidence of our genuine faith. <clears throat> and so I wanna bring up just two very important things to put in your back pocket. Number one, we are not talking about miracles here. We are talking about gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that is a distinction that I don't think is often made. <clears throat> Just because someone is a, sensa- is a sensationalist, I've been doing that all week, so I don't mean sensationalist, I mean cessationalist, okay? But just because someone is a cessationist does not mean that they don't believe in miracles. And even miracles that may be similar to the ones that we find in the scriptures. Beloved, I believe that God can do miracles today. If he, can do, if he could do it back then, he can do it today, and I certainly believe that. And so we don't want to discount that. We don't want to. And that has never been what a cessationist believes. Never been. And on the other hand, just because someone is a continuationist does not mean that they accept every single miracle claim out there. There is discernment in this camp. And something that I'm not very good at is making a distinction between what I would call clear-thinking, charismatic brothers and sisters in Christ and the word of faith, prosperity gospel that you see on TBN and in the airwaves. I'm, I'm not always very good at making that distinction, but there is a distinction. And I can, on certain levels, I can fellowship with a clear thinking charismatic. They're not on every level, but on some levels, they're going to agree with us on the cardinal and most important issues of the faith. A word of faith, prosperity preacher on the other hand, they are not, they are heretics. Now I will say that I think the line is very slippery. And once you get into one, it's very easy to get into the other. I will say that, but not all of them have done that. And so the question is that, that we need to ask, is we need to ask, what does the scripture teach? Because we want everything we do in our life and in our faith and in our church to be based upon the authority of the word of God. Whether we practice the spiritual these particular spiritual gifts or whether we don't, we want to discern what the scripture teaches so that we can know that we are doing what God commands us to do. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna use the gift of tongues as kind of a test case. Uh, I can't really talk about all of them. I don't have time. Tongues is usually the one that comes up in friendly conversation. And it is the one, if you know the history of the Pentecostal movement, you also know it's kind of the one that started it all. So, um, so we're gonna talk about this one. And we're gonna ask the question, is whether or not the gift of tongues something that we should be practicing today? according to scriptural authority. And anytime we make any kind of evaluation on scripture, we need to ask the three questions. Number one, what is it? Number two, what is its purpose? And number three, should we be looking for it? And that's the model we're gonna follow. And so number one, we're going to ask the question, what is the gift of tongues? And for that, there are two passages that really define it for us. And really, there's only one passage that actually tells us what it is, and that is Acts chapter 2. So you might want to put your Bible ribbon in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, because we are going to come back there. But but Acts chapter 2 is really the one place where we are given a description of what the gift of tongues actually is. And so if we're, if we're gonna define it, we need to say, what does the Bible say that it is? What are biblical tongues? That is our first point. And the word, the, the word tongues is, it really it's, it actually means tongue, but it's used to speak of languages. And so what we're really referring to here is the gift of languages and whether or not these languages are still around so the very popular view today is that when we talk about the gift of tongues, we are actually talking about some kind of heavenly, ecstatic, or even angelic tongues. And I went ahead and put all the points up there because I know you'll want to write them down. And so are we talking about kind of a heavenly, angelic language that is, that is to be used as a private prayer language? And some of the verses they will use to... Uh, to say that is uh, a big one is 1 Corinthians 13:1 where Paul says though I speak with the tongues of angels he seems to be acknowledging there that there are actually tongues of angels that can be spoken. First uh, Corinthians 14, verses three and four says, but one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. Again, when you read that by itself, it seems to suggest that tongues are some kind of private prayer language, some kind of heavenly language that is to be used between you and God. Seems to suggest that. But like I said, there's only one passage that actually tells us what they are, and that is Acts chapter 2. And as you look down in Acts chapter 2, you remember the story. This is the day of Pentecost. And you remember that as they were praying in the room, uh, tongues of fire descended on them. There was a mighty rushing wind. The place was shaken. And it says here in verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is where speaking in tongues actually began. But if you look down in verse six, here's what you'll find. That when this sound occurred, the, the big sound that happened uh, attracted people in the city to there. And they said, when they came together, they were bewildered. This is the people of the city. Why? Because each one of the disciples, each one of them was hearing the disciples speak, watch this, in his own language in his own language. There are two facts to note here that actually there's really three here. But number one, Luke makes it very clear that we are not talking about a, human, a, a heavenly, angelic, ecstatic type language here, but we are in fact referring to human languages. Languages that you can speak, languages you you can hear. In fact, Luke in the text, he even goes on to, to, to name the different areas of the empire that they were from. And so the first note is that these are human languages. They are unlearned human languages that the disciples are speaking but number two, I want you to know how complete this gift really is. Because if you look in verse six, and then you go out, you go on down in verse 11, and when the sound occurred, the crowd came together. They were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. That is not the same word as tongues. That word is actually dialectos, which is what we get the word dialect from. And here's what I want you to see is that this gift, this heavenly spiritual gift was so complete, was so precise that each one was not only hearing in his own language, but he was actually hearing in the very dialect from which he came. You know that not every English speaker has the same dialect, right? I've actually gotten in trouble before because I say some words kind of weird, don't I? I call it a foyer, right? And people are like, you know, who says that? Well, I say that. It's a French word. That's how it's pronounced, you know, foyer, right? And I've had someone actually tell me, you know, you shouldn't call it like that before. It just separates you from the crowd. Whatever. But you know, I don't say aunt, I say aunt. I don't know why I do that. Well, I know why I do that because there's a U in there. And so I say aunt, right? That's not an issue of, of, you know separation whatever it's an issue of dialect and if if we were here today speaking in tongues and somebody said the word aunt in tongues i would hear aunt i would not hear ant an ant is a bug okay so anyway um so the uh, the point is is that this This gift is so complete that each and every person is hearing not only in their language, they are hearing in their dialect from which they are from. This is beyond debate. Beyond debate. In fact, it is so beyond debate that some people will say, and and even cessationists say this, is that when you go over to 1 Corinthians 14... We are not talking about the same tongues that they're talking about in Acts chapter two. This is what most of the commentators will say today, believe it or not. And so in 1 Corinthians 14, most of them will say that Paul is actually speaking of something different here. In Acts chapter two, we're obviously talking about human languages, but in 1 Corinthians 14, we're talking about divine angelic languages. Well, again, let's put that to the text. I mean, after all, you do have 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels. By the way, what language do angels speak? Every time we see an angel in the Bible, what languages are they speaking? Speaking human languages. They're speaking Greek or probably Aramaic. They're speaking Hebrew. They're speaking, they're speaking Aramaic. I don't know what language angels speak. But beyond that, is Paul acknowledging tongues of angels here? No, this is rhetorical. He's just saying, look, if I, if I speak with the tongues of angels, if I have divine eloquence, and yet I don't have love, I'm nothing but a sounding brass. I, I've said before, there are people in this church who sing in a way that makes the angels jealous. It's rhetorical, right? And so that's, what, that's all Paul's doing in fact, I can go on and show you this in verse 2. He says, If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, did Paul have all knowledge? Is Paul omniscient? No. Verse 3 If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, did Paul surrender his body to be burned? If so, how do you write this? All right? These are rhetorical, that's not what this is saying. And so there's no evidence here to suggest that Paul means anything different than what we find in Acts chapter two. And just to give you a few places to solidify this in your hearts, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 10, look at this. Talking about tongues, talking about speaking in tongues, Look at verse 10. He says, there are perhaps a great many kinds of languages in the world and no kind is without meaning. He is talking about languages in the world and none of them are without meaning. This is human languages that he's referring to. And let me show you this. Uh, Look over at 2 Corinthians 12, 4. I think I've actually got this on the board. Here's what he says. Can you think of someone who actually went to heaven and heard heavenly languages being spoken? Yeah, Paul did, right? And here's what he says about it. He says, I was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, watch this, which man is not permitted to speak. In other words, even if there is a divine heavenly language, you and I are not permitted to speak it. It's amazing to me how this verse doesn't come up more in this conversation. And so we're not talking heavenly languages here. And by the way, let me just say this 2 Corinthians was written shortly after 1 Corinthians, it's written from Troas. And if you look in Acts and Troas, what was going on, you actually find out that the author of Acts, who was Luke, was actually with Paul when 2 Corinthians was written. Luke was very familiar with what was happening in Corinth. And yet when he wrote Acts chapter two, he saw no need to make a distinction. So again, what is the gift of tongues? It is, and I've got this definition up here, it is the supernatural ability to spontaneously speak an unlearned language for the purpose of the gospel—an unlearned human language. My brother Fred is here with us this morning. And Fred, if I were to start speaking in fluent German, that would be the gift of tongues. I don't know how to speak. In, I don't know how to speak in German. I wish I did. I don't know how to speak in German. Say something in German. Isn't that cool, right? (laughs) I don't know how to speak in German, but if I just suddenly started doing it so that Fred can understand it, and then, uh, I don't know, uh, Brother Roy, can you speak in German? Okay, so Brother Roy stands up, and he starts interpreting what I'm saying correctly. I'm speaking in German. He begins to he begins to interpret it spontaneously without, without knowing German. That's the, that's the gift of the interpretation of tongues. And that's what we're talking about. And notice the whole point is to edify the church. If I start preaching in German, the only person in this room who's gonna get anything out of it is Fred. But that would do none of you any good, right? Right? But on the other hand, if I start preaching in fluent German and Brother Roy stands up and starts interpreting it for me, that's for the whole church, right? And that was how the gift of tongues worked. And that is not what we see in charismatic churches today. That is not what we see. So that's the gift of tongues. That's what it is. So what is the purpose of the gift of tongues? I'll spend a little more time on that. So what is the purpose of the gift of tongues? And, and at this point, a lot of what we're going to say is going to be uh, somewhat transferable to all the other signs and wonders. So, so the question we need to ask is, what was this gift's purpose? We already saw a little bit of it, but what is the gift's purpose? And that is this. Two that we find here is that number one, the gift, the, the purpose of the signs and wonders were to serve as a confirmation of the gospel. They were to serve as a confirmation of the gospel. For example, in Acts chapter two, down in verse 12, as people are speaking in tongues and everybody's hearing in their own language, it caused everybody uh, there in the crowd to ask, what is the meaning of this, right? And then Peter got up and he explained what the meaning of it was. This has always been the purpose of signs and wonders, not to make our lives comfortable, not to make our lives prosperous, not to serve as anything but the authentication of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what it's always been. In fact, the events of Acts chapter two are actually remarkably similar to the events of Exodus chapter 19. When God founded the nation of Israel, when they came under the covenant, when they came under the old covenant, what do you have at Mount Sinai? You have loud noise. You have fire descending. You have the whole place being shaken. And Israel became a nation on that day. God was starting something new. And now with all these similar phenomena, with all these similar signs, at the day of Pentecost, the church is born God is doing something again. This is, this is new Israel. This is the church that he is now beginning. And many of these same phenomena are being used to confirm that. So there's remarkable similarity between Acts 2 and Exodus chapter 19. But this has always been the case of signs and wonders. Even Jesus said this. Here's what he says in Matthew chapter 12. He says, but if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then you know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Why did Jesus do miracles? Because it was a confirmation of the gospel. It was a confirmation of the message. Acts chapter 14, three says basically the same thing, but Hebrews chapter two, verses three and four, I think really sum this up. The author of Hebrews, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Watch this. After it was at the first spoken through the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard, watch this, God also testifying with them both by signs, wonders, various miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his will. The whole purpose of those sign gifts were to confirm the message of the gospel. It was a confirmation, but it was also a demonstration of the gospel. It's also a demonstration of the gospel. Remember last week, whenever we were going through the ministerial gifts, and we were we were telling you that every one of these gifts is a demonstration. It is an outworking of the gospel. Whether you whether you call out repentance, or whether you are teaching, or whether you are serving, or whether you are giving, or whether you are serving mercy, or whether you are administering, all of these things show an aspect of the gospel. And when the church does them all together in unity, we are truly representing the body of Christ. Remember, I showed you, I, I told you about that, right? And in the same way, these gifts, all of these signs and wonders are, they demonstrate an aspect of the gospel. Every time Jesus heals someone in in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it is like a mini gospel being preached. Every time. And this is vital to understand. When Paul talks about what are the purpose of the gifts and In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22, he actually bases this on a verse in Isaiah. He says, um, in the law, it's written, he says the law, but it's actually from Isaiah. By men of strange tongues and by the lip of strangers, I will speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me. And watch this, verse 22. So then tongues are for a sign. I guess songs are when you sing in Tongues. Anyway, so tongues are for a sign, not for those who believe, but for unbelievers. Beloved, throughout the Old Testament, one of the visible signs of God's judgment upon a people is that a people of strange language that you do not understand comes and conquers you. That is is a message of his condemnation. Remember at the Tower of Babel? They all started at one language. They were told to multiply and and fill the earth, but instead they all congregated to one place and they said, we're gonna build a tower that reaches the heavens. In other words, they are setting up a monument to worship the stars of heaven, to make a name for themselves. And how did God punish them? He confused their languages, right? Right? In Deuteronomy chapter 28, when God tells his people that one of the covenant curses is that I will bring a nation against you from afar. And from the end of the earth, as the, as the eagle swoops down, a, lang- a nation whose language you shall not understand. One of the signs of God's judgment upon a people is that a people of another language comes and, and, and takes them. Imagine how scary that is. You don't even know what's going on, because you can't understand what they're saying, right? Just imagine how scary that is. And this is what Isaiah is warning, and also put the Jeremiah passage up there. Jeremiah 2: "A different language is a sign of God, holy displeasure, a sign of, of a sign of condemnation. And what we see in Acts chapter two is not the, is not the confusion of the language, but what we, hear, what we see in Acts chapter two is that because of the gospel, people are now hearing the preaching of the gospel in their own language. There is no longer a strange language that is speaking to them. They are hearing it in their own language. Acts chapter two is the reversal of the Tower of Babel. It is the reversal of that condemnation. At the tower, God confused their language. At Pentecost, everyone hears in their own language. At the tower, all the nations are driven apart. At Pentecost, all the nations become one in Jesus Christ. There is now no Greek, nor barbarian, Scythian, uh, no more slave, nor free, male or female. All are one in Jesus Christ. And that's what the gift of tongues demonstrates. The gift of tongues is a sign to unbelievers that there is now, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is a sign to unbelievers that their condemnation, their wrath of God that they are facing, that can now be forgiven, that can now be restored to God. Paul affirms this logic throughout in 1 Corinthians 14. Look what he goes on to say in verse 20, after 22. He says, Tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues and ungifted or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? But if they come in and everyone is prophesying, the secrets of their hearts will be disclosed and they will fall and worship God. Beloved, can you imagine? walking into a church and everyone there is speaking a language that you do not understand what are you going to conclude this church ain't for me (laughs) right i can't even understand them this church isn't for me and beloved that's exactly what an unbeliever is going to conclude I want you to understand that when we practice tongues the way that most modern churches practice tongues today, and people walk into this church and they hear all this tongue speaking, they are leaving them in their condemnation. And that is precisely the opposite of the purpose of the gift of tongues. The whole purpose of the gift of tongues is that you and I don't have to speak Hebrew anymore to know the gospel. We can hear it in our language. And by the way, you can read the word of God in your own language too. Isn't that great? Trust me, learning Greek and Hebrew is a chore. Amen. <laughs> it's not for everyone and we don't have to because God has made the gospel to all nations That's the whole point of the gift of tongues. When we preach, we communicate that there is a way out of condemnation and it is in the gospel of Jesus Christ and we do it in a way that you can understand so that you can know Christ, so that you can escape your condemnation, so that the secrets of your heart are disclosed and you can fall down and worship a God of heaven who has given all of his grace and all of his mercy to you. That's the point. That's the point that the gift of tongues served. That's why it was always a human language. And that's why Paul says, do not practice this gift unless there is an interpreter present. My, uh, one of my family members was going to a uh, charismatic church one time and she talked about speaking in tongues and all that. I said, well, who's your interpreter? And they said, oh, they stopped coming to church years ago. I was like, okay, (laughs) so then you're in violation of scripture. Uh, it, It misses the whole point. You're leaving sinners in their condemnation by doing that. Don't do that. And so that leaves us with the final question, and I knew this was gonna go a little longer. I'm sorry, just real quick. Should we seek the sign today? Is this still a spiritual gift that the church should still use? I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say, no, it is not. We don't practice it at Calvary. I'm not gonna tell you what you can and can't do in the privacy of your own home. But in all honesty, I don't really know that it's doing a whole lot of good for you but we certainly don't practice it in public here and we will not. Why? Is this an ongoing function of the church? No, why? Because the gospel has been confirmed. We don't need it anymore. We don't need the confirmation anymore. The gospel has been confirmed. There's no longer any need for signs and wonders. We have the completed word of God to give us everything we need for life and godliness in this world. You say, well, Randy, do you have any stronger arguments than that? I think so. Number one, if you look at biblical history, you know, to hear some people talk, you would think the Bible is full of miracles. It's really not. It's really not. There's really only about three periods in the Bible that you see an outbreak of miracles. Number one is Red Sea, Number one is Moses, right? Plagues of Egypt and the divine uh, preservation through the wilderness. We see that continued somewhat in the ministry of Joshua. We see it in the ministry of two prophets, only two, and that is Elijah and Elisha. And at that time, through the prophets, he's actually, it's the failure of the old covenant that God is beginning to tear the old covenant down and he's really establishing the office of the writing prophets but Isaiah, Habakkuk, uh, Jeremiah, um, oh, who else? I mean, basically all those writing prophets in the back of your Bible, we don't have a single miracle recorded of any of them. Not that, I, not that I can think of at the moment. Not a one. And then, of course, we have Jesus and the apostles, and that is the founding of the church and the establishing of the new covenant. So really, there's only three periods in the Bible where you have an outbreak of miracles, and all three of them are associated with certain individuals, and that's it. In fact, again, if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, you'll see that Paul kind of makes this point. He says, the sign of a true apostle were performed among you all, with perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Notice how closely signs and wonders and miracles are associated with the office of apostle. And the, apost- and the office of apostle was limited to 13 men. And that's it. There is no transference of that office. And each time as the specific ministries came to a close, so did the signs and wonders that accompanied them. No exception. Before the first century ended, the the confirmed authoritative word of the apostles had been written and was being circulated throughout the churches, so there was no more need for their signs and for their wonders. In fact, Jesus did not have very good things to say about people who seek for signs. He said that's actually a lack of faith. That's not faith. And so biblical history shows this. But biblical authority shows this also. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 all the way through 14 gives this long discussion on the spiritual gifts. I want you to notice at the end in verses 37 and 38. He says, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. And if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. In other words, even when signs and wonders were in effect, the written word of God still carried more authority than anything accompanied by signs and wonders. Even when the church benefited from these transitional gifts, Paul says that the written word is still the final authority. It is the written word that we are to follow. It is the written word that is infallible. It is the written word that is inspired. And it is the written word that carries everything for faith and practice in the church. We don't need tongues. We don't need vague prophecies. Oh, you have a decision to make today. Well, yay, I guess, I don't know. There's a guy today named Sean Bolts. When he gives prophecy over people, he gives these on-the-spots prophecies. Beloved, he literally has a device in his hand. Literally, he is looking at an iPhone in his hand as he prophesies over people in the audience. How gullible are we? You know, back in the old days, you know, the guy's wife would put a radio signal in the guy's ear and and he had to listen to his wife while he was doing his supposed prophecy and and he was caught red-handed. Today, they just have the phone right in front of them and reading off of it. It's crazy. He's one of the quote-unquote Bethel prophets. And so, beloved, the word of God is what we need in the church. The word of God carries the authority, not impressions, not dreams or visions, not anything like that. The written inspired word of God is all we need to establish our church, amen? Amen. So what is our evaluation? I don't believe modern tongues are biblical tongues. I really don't. But let's just say they are for a moment. Wouldn't you want to know how Paul commands you to practice them? If Paul says that, let him acknowledge that what I say is a commandment of the Lord, don't you think if we still practice tongues today, don't you think this is something we need to follow? Right? So let's see what he says. Verse 27, only two at a time, no more than three, each in his own turn. Is that what we see in modern churches today? No. Only if an interpreter is present. Is that what we see in modern charismatic churches today? No. And by the way, go down to verse uh, 34. Women, you're forbidden. Women are not allowed to speak in tongues. Is that what we see in modern charismatic churches today? No. In fact, oftentimes, it's mostly the women who are doing it. So all that to say, beloved, the only conclusion I think we can draw is this, is that modern uses of the gift of tongues, the modern phenomena of tongues, is not the biblical gift of tongues. It is a dangerous and possibly even demonic counterfeit. So, I understand this has been more of a teaching sermon. Maybe you feel like you've been lectured to today instead of preached to. So let me, let me bring this home. You say, okay, uh, Randy, I, that's, this is great. Whatever, I get it. But how does this affect me every day? Here it is. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I just wish there were more. Sometimes I I wish there were more to the Christian life. Sometimes I think that I'm just not Christian enough, that I I need to chase after more. I need to do more. I need to find a deeper experience in God. I need to find something deeper like that. And for something like that, these modern signs and wonders movements, that can be something that is very tempting to us that can be something that is very that is a great temptation. And beloved, if you get nothing else today, here's what I want you to get. You have everything you need in Jesus Christ. Your salvation is enough. You have everything you need for life and godliness. You don't need to seek for more. You don't need more. You don't need greater confirmation. You don't need greater visions. You don't need any of these other things. You need to grow deeper in the salvation that you have. You need to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ. You need to grow deeper in your dependence upon the Holy Spirit. That's what you need. But you do not need to go out and seek extravagant and marvelous and wonderful things to make you think that's gonna make you a better Christian. It will not. There are no haves and have-nots in Jesus Christ. We are all one in Christ and we all approach him and the same footing We're all in the same boat. We are all coming from the same sinful lifestyle and we are all saved by only the wonderful, marvelous, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is enough. And if you've never had this experience before, beloved, you are not somehow less of a Christian. You are not You are not suffering from a lack of faith. You are not committing the unpardonable sin and all these other things that people are afraid of if they question the modern signs movement. You don't have to worry about any of that because you are in Christ Jesus. And if you get nothing else from all of this, please get that. That you need nothing else. And how many people have wandered astray from the faith because they're looking for the deeper experience. They're looking for the greater experience. They're looking for the more exciting experience. Don't fall for that temptation. Only fall more in love with Jesus Christ. That's what you need this morning to grow deeper in your love for Christ. And beloved, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your savior, what does this mean for you? It means that at the very beginning, we have the inspired written word that all these signs took place to confirm that Jesus Christ has died for your sins. That he died, that he lived, that he satisfied God's wrath for you. And you this morning are listening to this gospel in English precisely because you have an opportunity to come out of your condemnation and into the grace of Jesus Christ. That's why we don't preach in Latin. That's why we don't preach. And you guys speak English here, we speak English. And we do that so that you can know the gospel of Jesus Christ and you can know that there is salvation and there is escape from the condemnation of sin. And if you don't know Christ this morning, would you please come and hear what Christ has done for you? Whatever your need is, I pray this has been helpful. Let's go to the Lord together. Lord, I thank you that you have given so many confirming signs and miracles that you have given us the inspired record of those things so that we may know you, that we may place our trust in you, that we may know that we have everything we need in Christ Jesus. And maybe, Lord, there's someone here this morning who does not know Christ. And they're hearing these words and wondering what it's all about. Did these signs and wonders really happen? Are there there things that they're missing out on? And and maybe there's Christians here this morning wondering, are they missing out on a greater experience? Lord, I pray you would confirm all of our hearts this morning. For those who are lost, you will confirm the soundness and the truth of the gospel. And for those who are here this morning, who are discouraged in their faith and wondering if there's more, I pray you would comfort their hearts and give them an understanding of who you are and in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they would grow more in you and in greater assurance of their faith. Whatever your need is, I just invite you to stand up for a moment and just bow your heads and close your eyes and just kind of reflect on what's been said. Are you looking for a deeper experience? Are you thinking your salvation is not enough? Are you thinking that there's something greater that you're missing out on? I invite you this morning to renew your total trust, faith alone in Christ alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone, by His grace alone, and the authority of Scripture alone. Now you place your faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ and nothing else. There's nothing more you need.